What comes to mind for you when you hear the word holiness? I venture to think, many of you, it's not a warm and fuzzy feeling. And that's why it is sometimes difficult to reconcile that the God we worship is both characterized as holy and gracious. How do you fit those two together? So often Christians and and even churches have struggled so much that it almost produces two types of Christians. You have, on the one hand, a fundamentalist Christian who emphasizes holiness and seems to lack graciousness. They can be judgmental and harsh. To be holy for them is to be dour and grim, perhaps a bit uptight. And holiness can be best achieved for this people of God to be separate from others, keeping anything impure to be away. Perhaps you read our passage this morning in light of this. God's holiness seems uncompromising. His perfection is such that if you make one little mistake, he's going to zap you like he did to Uzzah. Can God tolerate even being around sinners? Perhaps in reaction to this, many Christians today have downplayed the idea of holiness. They want a God who is imminently gracious and accepting. A God who wants you just the way you are, without need for any change. I don't know if you've seen the billboard for uh, one of the gyms looking to get more members. And the advertisement basically says wanting to to play down the the effort that it it can be a judgmental place, you're all right just the way you are. I read that and I think, awesome! I don't need the pain of having to work out and get up early and do exercises. I don't need the expense of a gym membership. But probably the worst advertisement of all time because I have no desire at all, if I'm okay just the way I am, to join a gym. We treat God like this. We make him so gracious and so accepting that he's actually not really worth our time. That he indeed has nothing to offer us. How do we reconcile these two? Graciousness and holiness. Well, I want to offer that we have a deep misunderstanding of this uh, this concept of holiness. What does it mean? How is it good news for us? Because we come from a a passage that clearly portrays God as holy, but his holiness doesn't mean separation from us here. It involves bringing God near, but in the end, it's not bleak, uptight worship, but a worship of a heart set free, one that seems uncontrollable, maybe. And so, what is it? for God to be holy and gracious. Let's turn again to his word, um, but before we do that, let's pray. Father, we pray that you'll help us to understand your word as it is your self-revelation. It is you revealing yourself powerfully to your people, and so I pray as we hear it now that you might use it to transform us for your holy purpose. In Christ's name, amen. 
Well, to set the scene a little bit for this uh, chapter we've just read, I want to back up a little bit to the previous chapter. And in there, in chapter 5, we see uh, God's uh, kingdom finally established. David is on the throne and is anointed over all of Israel. Finally, everybody in the country is sort of rallied around him. And he wins a very significant battle. He takes Jerusalem. This is where Jerusalem becomes the center of Israel's worship. It becomes the place where uh, they see as their capital city, the place where David will reign from. And so now Israel has political unity, it has military power, it has financial stability, and David sees that wonderful prosperity of God's people, but it's not enough. He realizes that he needs to bring in the ark of God. He needs to bring it into the to the city to dwell with where God's people are now. And the Ark of the Covenant had been uh, basically forgotten. You know, if you've been reading 1st and 2nd Samuel together, we haven't heard a word about the Ark of the Covenant since uh, the early parts of chapter 7 in 1st Samuel. And it's an indication, as, as uh, the book of Chronicles will also reinforce, that at the time of Saul's reign, the ark was simply forgotten. It was taken for granted. Perhaps 20 years went by without a mention of the ark. But David is intent to bring it back. And so he brings this ark into the city of Jerusalem, and he, and he celebrates it with a, a big party. There's, there's uh, harps and lyres and tambourines and songs and dances. But then suddenly, the party comes to a screeching halt. The music stops. The dancers cease. And a man lays dead. Verse 7 says that God's anger was kindled against Uzzah and struck him down because of his error. That doesn't seem fair. Why would God do that? that Uzzah simply tried to stop the ark from falling. It was the oxen's fault. The oxen stumbled. And if anything, Uzzah was trying to honor God for the way he acted. Why would God punish him? Why couldn't God be more understanding? We need to put some context into this to understand God's action here. Or else we'll see it just as a random punishment, as if God is fickle and he, he acts one way one time and another another time. We must see how Israel was to care for the ark. That role of how they were to care for it was specifically put down in Scripture. We look at the books of Exodus and Leviticus, and it explains that this box is no ordinary religious artifact. In Numbers 4, goes into great detail on how they're supposed to transport the ark. It wasn't just supposed to be transported by the Levites. They actually had a special subset of Levites, the the Kohathites. And they were the ones that were assigned to carry the ark. And they weren't to look inside it. They weren't to touch it. And they weren't to use a cart. Uh, There's a what seems like a strange passage in Numbers chapter 7, 
where God is giving out oxen and carts to, it seems like, everybody. He gives an oxen and cart to one group, a second group, a third group, but then he gets to the Kohathites and he says, none for you. And again, making the point that when they were to move the ark, they were to carry it on their shoulders. But the problem wasn't that they just forgot to look at some uh, Old Testament passage in their mind, so some, some passage of the Bible. The problem actually runs much deeper. Remember, the last time we looked at the ark, it had been captured by the Philistines. And the Philistines thought that the ark itself held spiritual magical power. In fact, they saw it as a super weapon. That if they brought this ark out into the battlefield, it would win all their wars for them. If that sounds familiar, that is the plot of Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. Remember, the Nazis tried to get that ark so that it would bring them into battle, and they open it up, and the guy's face melts, and yeah. Um, That's their thought. And then when they get the ark, the Philistines almost are wiped out single-handedly by the ark itself. They get diseases, they they start to uh, be destroyed, and so in a panic, they send the ark back into Israel on a cart. What's Israel doing? Well, they're acting just like wicked Philistines. They're acting just like the last time we saw this ark, taken by the people who were the enemies of God, who were, who were dealing with it according to their ways. They were presumptuous. They presumed that they could approach God according to their own preferences. And they were worldly. They were just like their neighbor. It was presumption. They wanted to conform God to their ways of taking care of him, understanding that he could fit into their expectations. So we understand that, but, you know, is this punishment too severe? Is this what holiness means? We approach God the wrong way, and we're going to get zapped. Some of us think of holiness this way. Think of a God that won't be understanding. Maybe that's your experience. Perhaps you think of holiness, and you know your sin, and, and you think that if you were to approach God, that all you would find in that presence would be judgment. That if you were to try religion or to go deeper into your faith, in fact, all you would have to do is find a way to get yourself more and more holy. That view of holiness will drive you away from God. Perhaps that's your experience in church. You come here, you see everybody else that seems holy. They all look cleaned up and so nice. And you think, well, what if I stand up at the wrong time? People are standing and sitting and who knows what we're supposed to do when? What if I say the wrong thing? What if I'm not wearing the right clothes? Will I be judged? If that's your view of holiness, you're going to run. Because you view holiness as separation. David is stung by God's action, and he responds with anger. He's dismayed by God's holiness. It's a burden too great for him to bear. And he looks at at his sinfulness and God's holiness, and he says, why bother? 
this is too much. And so he sends the ark away to some poor fool named Obed-Edom who didn't see it coming. And, And David says, okay, you deal with it. You deal with God's holiness. So let's think about that impulse. Let's think about that impulse because I think it's common for many of us that the impulse when thinking about holiness is to run away and to get far. What is God's holiness? Typically, the definition of holiness that we often hear in church is to be set apart. Otherness. And it's true that that's what the Hebrew word, if we go back to semantically what it means, it means to separate. And we even understand that God is majestic and glorious. He's far above his creation. He dwells in unapproachable light. A holy God is separate. Must be separate from wickedness, certainly. And for God to be holy means that he's morally pure. That he cannot have fellowship with sin. And that is all true, and we need to hold on to that. But it is a partial truth. And in fact, if we leave it there, what we will find is that we misunderstand God's holiness. And so I want to look at three points about holiness very quickly, just to balance out that view so we don't wind up with a a half view and thus a false view of holiness. First, we need to see that holiness is essential to God's being. Holiness is who God is. I mean, so often we treat holiness like it's some abstract attribute out there, some standard, maybe a standard that we create that we need God to fit into. But holiness isn't a standard. Holiness is identical with God's essence. It is who he is. It is what he does. Holiness is God being God. And if that's true then holiness must fit with all of God's other attributes because God doesn't have differing parts. He doesn't have conflict within himself and his nature. He is consistent. And so that leads us to our second point. Holiness must fit with what else we know about God's character, namely that he's a being. In his being, in his action, he is relational. That God is relational. If you look at Scripture, as God talks about himself, and even as Scripture talks about God in in, uh, the concept of holiness, we see that played out, that he is relational. Hosea 11, Hosea says, he is the Holy One in your midst. Isaiah describes God as the Holy One of Israel. You see, it's not... Holy God separate from his people, but holy God with his people, in the midst of his people. The holiness isn't simply transcendence. Holiness is God drawing near to a particular people. It is not God's distance or difference, but how he makes himself known. It's how he reveals himself to the people he makes a covenant with, the people he relates to and joins himself to. Theologian John Webster says, it's easy to mistake that God's holiness is concerned not with God with us, but with God apart from us. 
God with us is how God tells us we are. And so often we misunderstand this. This connection between God's holiness and his covenant relationship with a particular people is essential. Because God's holiness is relational. That leads us to the third point. That in this relationship, God doesn't keep his holiness to himself. A holy God who draws near isn't just a standard of moral perfection and isn't drawing near to condemn and destroy. He is the fountain of all holiness. His presence, as he draws near to his people, comes out to his people. You see, he doesn't keep his holiness to himself. But he shares it to his people. Think about how important that is. His holiness doesn't drive the people of God away. his, His holiness doesn't drive away unholy people. As if we were to think that touching him would somehow make him unclean. As if, as if, if we approached God, he would somehow get our cooties. And so he's going to run away and be, be safe from us, separated out in pure uh, holiness. No, God's holiness is always tied to his covenant. When, when it's tied to his covenant, people is redemptive. A holy God comes to a messy, sinful, and unholy people, and he purifies them. He makes them holy. That's amazing good news. Think about that, one of the most famous passages in the Old Testament. In Leviticus, God says to his people, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord, am holy. I think I've always read that as a threat. I think I've always read that as clean yourself up. If you ever want to be a Christian, if you ever want to know God, clean yourself up to be acceptable for him because you must be holy. I don't think it's a threat. I think it's a promise. I think it's a promise of blessing. God's destruction of sin is accomplished when he gets in relationship with his people. It is when God is with us that he condemns and pardons and purifies his people. I think this is exactly the lesson that David has to learn in this passage. Because for him, God's holiness has been unattractive, something that he cannot stand to be around, something he has to flee from. This is why he he casts the presence of God away. This is why he cries out, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? For him, it's impossible with this understanding of holiness. Perhaps you need to hear this. Perhaps you feel you have failed to such a degree that you can't be around a holy God. And the more you contemplate God's holiness, the more you feel like a failure. You see holiness, perhaps you see holiness as conformity to some standard that you have to earn or achieve. And you just can't do it. And so you're repelled by a God like this. (laughs) Look at what David has to learn here and how he learns it. David sends the ark down to Obed-Edom. Now, Obed-Edom is a guy who lives 
He's called a Gittite, which means he lives in the Philistine city of Gath. His name means literally servant of Edom. All the signs in this narrative are pointing to the fact that this guy is a Gentile. He is not just a bad person in Israel, he is off the map. He is completely unworthy, has no idea anything about the God or the promises or the requirements that God has for holiness. And so David sends the ark to this poor guy, basically saying, you deal with it. But God needs to teach David about his presence. And I, thought, I think he also needs to make fun of David a little bit. You know, David probably thinks this dope is going to get wiped out in less than a week. When this ark goes down there, it is going to just wreak havoc on him because he doesn't know anything about God. And, and, and David sends the ark down, and it's not on this guy's front lawn for more than an hour before God starts blessing him. Can you imagine David... You know, getting down the binoculars, let's check on old Obed-Edom and see how things are happening with him. And Obed-Edom, the guy's got the girl of his dreams, becomes his wife. You know, he wins the lottery, his crops are bursting. David is looking at this, and he just can't believe it. How is the ark doing this to this guy? Doesn't God know who this guy is? But then it clicks. He sees Obed-Edom dancing with joy out there. And he says, Aha! I get it. The ark was always meant to bless. That was its purpose. The ark. But more than the ark, God's presence. And all that the ark represented was always there to bless. It's more than a box. It wasn't magic. It didn't have magical powers. But it stood for God. And it stood for God in relationship with his people. You know, just real quick, I'll show three definite things that the ark stood for. First, it, it, it contained the tablets of God. It, it contained God's covenant promises with his people. It had the Ten Commandments there. It was God's word communicating to his people. But secondly, it, it is also said to be God's throne. It was, in Chronicles, it's his footstool from where he reigns and rules. And thirdly, it was the place of sacrifice. Once a year, on the Day of Atonement, you would sprinkle the, the blood of the, the sin offering on that ark. You see what the ark represented here. God revealing himself as a God who, who is a God who communicates with his people, a God who rules his people, and a God who intercedes for his people. A prophet, a priest, a king, all tied together in that one ark. What is the ark? The ark's nothing less than the representation of Jesus Christ. What he would come and fulfill God with us to redeem and to bless. David sees the blessing of Obed-Edom and he finally gets it. God's presence always meant blessing. It wasn't just enough to bring the ark back. He had to finally understand that the ark pointed 
to a God who meant to redeem. But the ark would never bless, and it would always curse if David used it as a tool. The ark would never bless and always curse if the ark had come on his terms, if he treated it like a lucky charm, if he used it for his purposes. The same could be said about this table. You know, John Calvin, preaching on this passage, uh, shows a great likeness to the ark and here to the Lord's Supper as a sacrament. Not exactly the same, but there's a representation of God and his promises to redeem here at the table. And we can treat this as something sacred and spiritual, maybe something powerful, but if we take it apart from Christ, we're doomed to take this meal in order to fit in with others. We're to take this meal in, in thinking that it conveys some mystical power would be to take it in a way that would unintentionally cut ourselves off from the hope of redemption. We would cut ourselves off from the very gospel because we would approach it, the very gospel it was supposed to convey, and miss the message, thinking we're getting it, thinking we're connecting ourselves to to something powerful from God, but missing his way. Now, the answer here isn't to keep our distance from it, The answer is to come searching for Christ. Know that you need his work. His work dealing with your sin. His work to redeem you. And so when you hunger and thirst for that, then you come to this table and you are deeply satisfied. David gets it. David finally understands. So he rushes down and he gets this ark and he brings it back knowing its holy purpose, always to bless. We need to learn this lesson, too. We need to get that same aha that that David had, that God's holiness and his grace are always meant to be held together. And if we don't, we will fall into idolatry. We will have a God of our own making, and we'll be cut off from the blessing he has for us. So let me finish with just two ways that this applies to us. What does it mean? First, if we seek grace apart from God's holiness, we will never have a God worthy of worship or a God who will bless us. If we seek grace apart from holiness, we'll be cut off. David thinks originally at the beginning of this chapter that if he brings the ark into into Jerusalem, that that's going to solve his problem. That's why they begin with celebration. He thinks that he finally gotten this blessing according to his terms. He doesn't want a holy God. He doesn't want a God that's going to confront him or challenge him. He wants a God that he can handle, that he can treat his way, that he can approach him on his terms, that will fill his needs. He wants a God of his own making. You know, it's common uh, to argue that uh, belief in God is just uh, an evolutionary um, development, that we needed something to explain all meaning in the universe, and so we created God. That may be true for a lot of people, but that line of reasoning does not hold up when you start reading about the God of the Bible. 
you would not create a holy God. Look, if I wanted to create a God, I want to create a God that is going to approve of me. I want to create a God who can can accept me the way I am, that's not going to push back and and challenge me, and and a God that's going to make me feel uncomfortable. If I were to create a God, I want him to affirm my life choices. I don't want a God that's going to tell me that I have sin. I don't want a God that's going to tell me that everyone in the world has sin, and that really matters. And that sin is unacceptable. Humans would never come up with a holy God. I don't know if you've seen or used the new app that's like really popular right now. It's Google Arts and Culture has this amazing app that you can take a selfie and it will match your face with a famous piece of art. Have you done it, anybody? Uh, it's just really cool. And the, the idea is that it's going to generate your interest in art. That you're going to somehow uh, fall in love with the great works of art. I actually think that what it's going to do is just continue to make you fall in love with yourself. <laughs> you're not going to love art. You're going to love seeing yourself in art. You want your image, your own self. The Christians are constantly tempted to approach God like this. Pastors and churches are constantly tempted to put forward a God who goes down easy. A God that will confirm and affirm all my views. A God that that votes the way I vote. A God that, that shares all the same perspectives on the world. A God that, you know, will be disappointed in those who I'm disappointed in and, and excuses all the things I do because I'm, you know, okay. We want a God like that. But a holy God, a holy God is much richer. A holy God will not allow us to be comfortable in our own preferences, because our own preferences, because they come from a sinful heart, will be sinful. A God who is not holy is allowing you to be presumptuous. Allows you to worship the way that you find pleasing. and Wouldn't care necessarily at all to make you feel uncomfortable. You could say, well, of course I will accept any, offer, any worship you offer me. I'm a gracious God. I'm easygoing. A God like that is like the gym that tells you you're okay the way you are. It's fun to listen to, but after a while you realize it's empty. There's nothing to offer you. But God, the God of Scripture, is determined to bless. He, this is why he strikes down Uzzah. Because he won't let his people miss out on grace. Yes, Uzzah's physical body died, but his soul did not. That's a small price to pay for him and for all of God's people not to miss the message of redemption that God has to offer. He wasn't going to let that let us do that to ourselves. He wasn't going to let us take the ark and use it as a trinket. No, he won't let us negotiate away our good by allowing us to set the terms. Our good and our blessing has to come as we come to a holy God who wants to put to death the sin that binds us, who wants to make us holy. And what happened to us is a grace, a grace to David, a grace to the people of God, a grace to us, because God refuses to let us approach him as an idol. 
That's the first thing. God's blessing must come on his terms. But the second thing is also crucial. A holy God's blessing doesn't come by making ourselves holy or by achieving holiness apart from him. It comes by allowing a holy God to be the center of our lives. For some of us, it's easier just to try to be holy apart from God. Okay, just tell me the right thing to do. Tell me the right thing to believe. I can do all this in such a way that I can avoid God's wrath. He'll never get angry with me and that he'll have to bless me because he can hold nothing against me. And we train our kids to do that too, right? Do all the right stuff so things will go well with you in life. Learn all the right things. Be perfect. And then whenever tragedy interrupts our life, we get mad. God, that wasn't part of the deal. Well, have you tried to achieve holiness apart from God? It doesn't make any sense. God may be your judge, may be the one you please in this, but he'll never be the one you submit to. Holiness is not conformity to some rule book. Holiness is an attribute of God. It is who he is. It's only when you come by inviting him into your life, letting Christ, the prophet, priest, and king, dwell in your life, communing with him, letting Him, his holiness come to you and challenge your sin, to uncover it, and yet to cleanse it, to put it to death, and to kill it. Allowing his presence to work in your life allows God to establish the terms of the relationship. Allowing yourself to conform to his presence. And honestly, if you give yourself over to him in that way, if you allow him to dwell at the center of your life, it will transform your worship. That is what holy worship is. Oh, we're so mistaken on this. So much we think that holy worship is exactly what a a fundamentalist would look like. Rigid. Angry, straight-laced. How often do we make this mistake that worshiping a holy God means that we are miserable and gloomy, really somber when we worship? David learns the lesson that God is holy. But look how it transforms his worship. Verse 14, it's a heart that's set free, full of joy and celebration. He is ecstatic dancing around because he has a holy God. The celebration far exceeds the songs that were sung in verse 5 when he thought that he had a God that he can control. But now that he has a holy God, dancing is just not, a, not just allowed, it's almost required because he's embraced the joy that that holiness always come, came to do, which was to make him holy. He can approach a God without fear and full of hope because he sees God using this holiness not to keep himself at a distance, but to draw close, to set him free from the burden of sin, and to conform him to the image of his Son. This is the good news for us. Let's hear it. Amen. Let's pray.